You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have a really good friend of mine, somebody I've known for many decades. I won't say how many decades, but a lot of decades. His name's Ken Friedman. He's a terrific screenwriter. He's written on some really huge blockbusters, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, Cadillac Man with Robin Williams, Johnny Handsome with Mickey Rourke. He's also a professor of television and screenwriting at NYU. He's a lover of skiing, which is how we met. And we're here to talk about all things Alice, which means we're going to talk about The Looking Glass Wars and his advice on how to adapt my novels into film or television. And we're going to talk about Hollywood and his experiences in the business. So let's tumble down the rabbit hole and start chatting with my good friend, Ken Friedman. Hey, man, welcome to the show. I feel very comfortable with you. We met years ago when I was living with Peter Markle, the director of the masterpiece Hot Dog the Movie, 
Peter directed the film. I did the ski stunts, and turns out that he's also from Minnesota, and we moved in together in an apartment or a duplex on Wooster Street, and you came walking in the door. And what I remember the most vividly about meeting you that first day is how you completely ghosted me. (laughs) Walked right past me, sat down with Peter, started talking about the film you two were co-writing Youngblood, and I, you know, I was a kid from uh, Minnesota, and I thought that was incredibly rude. And I stepped out, give, gave you your space, but then met you a couple years later skiing at Snowbird, and we really connected because you had fallen in love with skiing, and I was up there doing stunts for Better Off Dead with John Cusack. And as I remember, we went to dinner, and... I think I proposed, hey, I can make you a better skier if you can teach me how to be a screenwriter. And that was, uh, as far as I recall, the birth of a long-term relationship. So what do you recall about one? Completely different story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember going to Peter's to work on the script for Youngblood. Mm -hmm. By that time, I was already enthralled with skiing. And you showed up, I think, after me. And I was working on the computer and we were doing some editing with Peter. So you were just an interloper. (laughs) I probably had somewhere else I wanted to be uh, other than working with Peter. And then you further delayed things until I was informed that you were a champion skier. (laughs) Right. And then I went, oh. (laughs) And I think at that point, I had decided that I'm going to get to know you better. <laughs> and uh, what I have to offer with you, uh, with Mike, Michael Lerner, with some other well-known screenwriters and producers now, uh, I knew a few things. You know, didn't know how to ski as good as you. But at that stage, I knew, I knew how to write and develop a movie story. Right. And uh, so I think within 20 minutes of you coming in to the house and leaving, I have a completely different impression of me. But I decided I'd get to go know this guy better. But, you know, in your world, where I don't know anything and wasn't really that good a skier at the time, I could see what was in it for me. What was it about skiing, uh, before we jump into writing, that was so attractive to you? Because you did start late in life, as I remember. My, I had an uncle, Gerhard, German. I would go up and ski with him in high school, but it was always during winter vacation and it was raining. And so, uh, but I remember liking it. When I went out to L.A. for about 10 years, I was a prodigious writer but a prodigious partier, too. <laughs> and weekends got to be very debilitating right. and expensive. And I said, for the money I pay partying mm. for Friday, Saturday night, I can fly to Snowbird and learn to ski and meet, remain entirely sober. It was better, more fun than hanging in, in Hollywood. It was part of a, a sort of a, a program, uh, an athletic program, finding something to replace, you know, the partying or the drinking and the athleticism and being in the mountains and nature and well, were all of those. The part partying of it? didn't get in the way of my playing tennis, playing golf. I see. Playing racquetball. Okay. Uh, oh, that's right. You used to play racquetball. I remember yeah. we did that a few at, times. At a pretty high level. Yes, right? you were really good at that. But 
it was wearing on me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a lot more fun. It was a lot healthier. My girlfriend at the time was a skier. Mm-hmm. You remember Sally? Of course. And um, so it, w- it was healthful and it was fun. And, uh, you know, I remember being with you in the, some of these ski trips mm-hmm. to Park City. At Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, before... Before the festival was when it was a ski festival. That was the most fun. The year of uh, sex lies and videotape. I think it was 1989. That was the highlight where everybody would come out skiing. We would ski with like 30 people that were part of the industry. Yeah. I mean, and that was a great time. But before sex lies and videotape, uh, our film uh, Made in USA played at Sundance. Oh. It did. Oh, I had forgotten fact, about that. It was closing night film. Oh, bravo! Special right. screening. Right. And, right. And um, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, your uh, ten minute introductory scene. Yeah. Didn't make the movie. Yeah. Uh, not my fault, by the way. Well, let's just. Uh, I'm just going to clue the audience in um, about this film because it was your first um, directing job. So at the time, I was an aspiring actor, as you recall, and you had written and directed this movie. We're, we're going to write, direct this movie. My friend Nancy was the assistant to your girlfriend. Well, Sally was the casting director, right. right? And so they, you guys all asked me to come in and read for this, this small part. It was the first 10 minutes of the film, but... There was not that much dialogue. And the way that you wrote the script was really unique because in the description of what was happening, you wrote it in first person. And it was the most lively script because all of the dialogue was from the character's point of view. So I decided to read that description as the character even though, because there was only a couple of lines, and they were all reactive lines, for been getting chased in the car and saying something to my girlfriend, and there was there was not that much. And when I came into the audition, I asked if it was okay, and you lit up. You, I remember you saying, "Yeah, no problem." The casting director, Nancy, and uh, and your girlfriend Sally said, "No problem," but. Chuck Rovin, the producer, he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't want to sit through a whole long thing. But for whatever reason, he let me do it. And I made a, I made a loud scream and I jumped into it. And I just did this thing which went on for like five minutes and you were beaming the whole time. And I walked out and the room was filled with actors and they were all so confused because they heard all of this dialogue going on and they were like, what part did he read for? And I ended up doing the movie with you and uh, and getting cut out. But it was a f- super fun experience. Probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, you know, the, the, the film had an interesting history. And... Well, tell us the premise of the film, because the premise of the film feels quite contemporary. Before I wrote the film, I was on an airplane from Los Angeles to New York. I went back and forth a lot. I did a lot of writing, working with different producers and directors, some in New York, some in L.A. And I was reading an article in Newsweek magazine about a place called Centralia, Pennsylvania. True story. And there was a coal fire 
under the town. And the description in this uh, article said this the road, the roads, the streets glowed red at night. Mm-hmm. And I said, I got to see this place. Sounds like hell on earth. I got to go. So I rented a car in New York and drove to Centralia about two and a half hours from New York. And sure enough, not only were there red spots on the road and the cemetery was fumes arising and houses that caved in. It was it was really interesting. Apparently, the, the town, there were like dozens and dozens, hundreds of these small uh, coal mining towns uh, that uh, were established in the early 19th century. Mm. And the people lived on top of the mines, mm. and the workers would go down and then go into the tunnels. Mm. And it was deep mining coal. And during World War II, uh, the need for coal was great. And the restrictions on uh, mining was so expensive that they began uh, using cheaper coal in New Mexico and Arizona, and these towns died. On uh, April Easter, 1981 or so, a fire broke out in the town dump. There was no real urgency. One out of every three houses was already unoccupied. There didn't seem any urgency to put out the fire. They waited a day for two years. The fire burned down, found a seam of coal near the surface, and charred its way down. So eventually, the charring down of the coal fire found the open tunnels full of oxygen and exploded into fire. And there were miles and miles, 1,000, 2,000 feet below the town that was now cooking like a barbecue. And that's where the fumes came from, and that's where fire sometimes wound its way up to the surface. And it really was hell on earth. Hell on earth, and also a preview of what we're experiencing now with climate change in this little area and this niche city. It was was like that. Yeah. And I wondered when I went there, what happens to people who grew up in this town? Mm -hmm. No jobs. And I began to think of the social contract. You know, that thing that we all signed up to, that if uh, we don't run traffic lights, mm-hmm. we don't beat up people without reason, <laughs> we follow the rules and follow the law, society's part is to give you a house, a home, a wife, two children, a picket fence, and a dirt bike to play with on the weekends. Mm-hmm. But these people didn't get their end of the social contract, so they grew up sociopathic. So... I wanted to take these guys, two guys from this town who were 18, and send them across country. Wherever they would go would be another uh, environmental disaster, and another group of people not offered the social contract. So I came up with the idea to do a road picture across the country. Uh, Everywhere they go, uh, the two leads, uh, Chris Penn and Adrian Pazdar, uh, they would run into another environmental disaster. What the were Ashton, some of the other ones? That the Oxen they... spill oh, in okay. Times Beach, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, radiation from mining of uranium on the Indian Reservation in uh, New Mexico. Everywhere you went, mm-hmm. they would run into. And it was my idea that if I'm going to shoot this, I want to, not a documentary, but I wanted to document. Mm-hmm. So part of the concept is that we would shoot in all these uh, locations that were damaged environmentally. We had hazmat suits. Uh, we had pregnant people who couldn't be on the set. But we really went, uh, went in there and shot. And 
Times Beach, we couldn't even take our own vehicles in there. We had to use the special vehicles that they had for a couple of families that totally refused to move. Mm. The world's crazy. And so they should, they, they visit uh, all, all these locations uh, basically trying to get laid. Mm. You know, that's the only thing in front of them. <laughs> Their plans to go to California, fuck a couple of surfer girls, and I don't know what after that. Well, wasn't that my character? Uh, I was, you know, I was of that town uh, in Pennsylvania, and I was yes. picking up my girlfriend in my, I think I was a Trans Am or something. Porsche. No, it wasn't a Porsche. No, it wasn't a Porsche. No, it was an American car. It was definitely either a trans. Oh, but maybe there was something different in the script than there was the movie. Oh, you had a Porsche. Uh, 924. Uh, yeah, no, no, it wasn't a Porsche. It was a Trans Am. Anyway. Very concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I wanted my character to be perfect. But uh, the funny story uh, that I recall is that the girl was uh, quite attractive. That was my girlfriend. And you wanted me to pull over. I believe she was Jane Fonda's niece. What? Or Peter Fonda's niece. Okay, so you're remembering a lot more details than I am. <laughs> but I will. Re- I, I can recall this story. So I pull over. We're in the front seat of our the, the Trans Am, and you have the camera outside on the on the windshield, and then you pull back to reveal us making out. But then this desolate road. And I don't the smoke and steam. The smoke and the steam. And so you can see the the uh, the fire of the road underneath us. So it's a really slow, long pullback shot. And uh, and you the direction was okay, you guys just make out until I say cut. I was like, I couldn't believe what a dream job this was. <laughs> At least at the in the beginning, and so we did this first scene. We we're making out, and it was great. And and uh, and you said cut, and then there was some sort of technical issue because we did a couple more see. We did a couple more takes, and in the next take, she bites my lip kind of hard, and I went, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Next time, don't bite my lip so hard, okay? And um, and then on the third take, you didn't say cut. So we're making out, and I'm looking over over her shoulder going, come on, guys, this can't possibly still be going on. And you had forgotten to say cut. Uh, and then you came over for the next one. You said one more, and we were really making out heavy, and I hit the windshield yeah. wiper. And, <laughs> I remember and it, that. It, sp- <laughs> it, it, it sprayed water everywhere, and everybody was screaming at me outside because I had to clean it up, and it was cold. And the girl had bit on my t- uh, my lip. It started bleeding, and I was like, listen, I am going to you know, I'm gonna get really angry if, you, if I keep bleeding. So Anyway, we uh, we uh, we ended up having a good time, but that was that was the end of yeah. That was the first or second uh, scene in the movie. Yeah, it was like the second or third day yeah. or something. Yeah. I, I and then Chris and Adrian they uh, they stopped my car and they're and it was night shoots right, and they were supposed to be really intimidating, and both of them were intimidating. They both had the the smell of vodka on their on their uh on their mouth and I was like, "Okay, we're really in character now." It was my uh it was my first well, it's my second experience actually, my first second job acting and uh I just had a great time for those few days we were on the uh set. One, it was it's a really cool concept and um 
and then you guys went on the road and shot the movie, and and then what happened? Well, to finish the story yeah. of the movie, along the way, they meet a girl from Times Beach, Missouri. Oh, right. Who Lawrence. had her whole family die of cancer, except her mother who was dying of cancer. Uh, so she was not offered the interpersonal contract. You know, basically, if you're nice to somebody, you can even fall in love with them. Uh, you have an opportunity for that. But she didn't have that opportunity, so she was psychopathic. And that was Laurie Singer. That was Laurie. And uh, she leads these guys onto uh, greater and greater criminal activity, Mm -hmm. uh, testing how far, making them kind of test themselves and see how far they were going to go. Great concept. Great concept. uh, Really quite a good film. But I got into a major dispute with the financier, not the producer, the with a guy named John Daly. And he had made uh, uh, the uh, Oliver Stone film, Platoon. Platoon, right. And uh, he was pretty full of himself. (laughs) So uh, after going all the way cross-country with this movie, being pretty happy with it, it was uh, very unusual because the film was shot in continuity. Oh, that's the other thing you wanted to do. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and... uh, so uh, we had some issues with Chris, who's terrific talent, who's gone now. Uh, but he was having a tough time personally during the making of the film. But because we were shooting uh, in chronological order, we just could get up every morning, go to the next location, and make it up as we went along. Laurie and Adrian were great. So the film was almost finished. John Daly, the financier, had been out of the country. His father was dying. Uh, in London, so he just didn't, was really hands off on the film, and we had we were struck by the IA. We had a lot of problems uh, because of uh, Daly being struck. All his films were struck, and we had a you know Curtis Clark, the great uh, cameraman, and Jim Newport, the design mm-hmm. uh, had a design on the pictures. Worked uh, despite the cross lines, as most of the people on the crew did. So we had trouble finishing it, but we did, and uh, we were we had finished it. We were a day and a half from finishing the mix on the movie, and Daly came back to town. Uh, we showed him the movie. Uh, he said everything was great. Uh, a week later, he came back, but I have ten notes that you have to change in oh. the movie. Oh no! Or uh, I won't let you finish it. Oh great! One of those ten notes was cut the opening scene. <laughs> Swear to God. <laughs> oh, and John, it, it, where are you today? I'm going to smack just, you, dude. Just look down. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> just look down. That was, that, was one of the, that was one of the ten bits. I don't even know why. Um, and, uh, you know, we fought for it, but, uh, you know. and then, You didn't so, fight hard enough, Kenny. You I did not fight hard enough. In fact, I had, to, I had to cut it out of the movie. We did the mix on it. If, uh, what? I have I have the elements. I can blackmail you with yes, that. Yes, you could. Um, I'd love to show my kids. Anyway, so, I digress. Uh, so, you know, I did the 10 things, and uh, they were all terrible. Then he said, I've got 12 more. And at that That's point... Sabotaging the entire experience. And uh, at that point, I said no, and he fired me. Hmm. and uh, took the, the film uh, to his dungeon 
and tortured it for the next three, four months. Oh, I'm inviting so sorry. me in every every two weeks to look at the damage that he had done. Torture porn. I got a call from the lab, uh, and uh, they they knew I was having recutting problems with the financier, and uh, they said, you know, we have uh, two black stripes in the movie in your cut before he got a hold of it. And, uh, well, with the 10 changes, but not the 20, 30 changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, you want to come over and get it. A black stripe is that they make a print of the film off the original negative without sound. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll come right over and get them, which I <laughs> ran <laughs> to Duart, I think it was. And <laughs> Daly was one of the most hated people in town and stiff people all the time. So all, all the uh, people at Duart were doing anything to fuck with him. And so they gave me the film. And then out of my own pocket, uh, directing's expensive. I went hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt finishing the film when he stepped away. But I had two versions, two cuts of the film. And I had uh, a copy of the mix, except for a day and a half, when he had taken it away from me. So uh, I paid to, to have that copy of the mix, to mix that reel and a half mm. off the black stripe, and waited and waited. And he kept torturing the film, and I didn't see that there was any good outcome to have. So I submitted the film to Ken. And Your version, my version to Ken, and, uh, and what was the reception? Well, before I went there, and John said, "You know, if you dared show this and that, I'll put you in jail." Which I don't know that it would put me in jail, but mm. and I said, "Bring it on," because <laughs> I knew that would make my career forever. <laughs> that would. <laughs> that would make me an icon. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of publicity you go for. Yeah, yeah. that could. So I said, "Bring it on," you know. So instead, he uh, he. Uh, brought his version of the film, rented theaters, uh, rented a private theater in Cannes in the market and showed it when uh, as an alternative to what I was showing at the Grand Palais, uh, director's fortnight closing night film. Wow, this is quite the duel. And uh, yeah, I made the front page of uh, the entertainment section of the Los Angeles Times with a picture of me. <laughs> Excellent. And so it was, uh, you know, Screened it in Canada. It was the first time I screened it in front of an audience, so I had no idea what to expect. They did a ceremony. I came in. They said a bunch of things in French I didn't understand. You know, showed the movie, standing ovation for 10 minutes. And I had my 15 minutes, you know. And I was single at the time. And uh, there were, as I remember, uh, very appreciative French girls <laughs> for 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 the vacation that summer I showed it, and I just took the film and went to Munich, went to all the film festivals, Zurich, all the all the, the toured all the film festivals, carried the film in my hands, and that's what you showed at Sundance, and we showed at Sundance too, right? Was it the midnight showing? Midnight, yeah. And what was the response there? It was great. It was great. I mean, uh, you know, the film is it's very unusual because of the, some of the hardships that we had when we made it. But, uh, you know, shooting it in continuity mm-hmm. and shooting at the real locations uh, is well, very most, powerful. Yeah, it would have and it's felt still, authentic. It's, st- it's still powerful. Yeah. And I uh, about five years ago, I took Patty, my wife, 
to Centralia, to, to, and most of it had been torn down and smoothed over, but there were still uh, parts of the road that were burning that were too hot to drive on. And uh, Is the film available? Well, I guess your version of the film is not available uh, here's anywhere. News. My version of the film sits in a... Uh, vault? Vault somewhere. That's too there, bad. There, there is... Uh, his version, without my name as writer, but as director, his his uh, version of the film is out there, and it was uh, it was available. It's been on TNT, and and then bootleg versions began to appear. So uh, on, uh, on, I don't know quite how bootleg versions of yours or of his? the of the film of your film, your of version made in USA. No, not my version. Oh, his version. Not his version. Really? Some people, you know, because of going back and forth from the lab, somebody got a hold of the elements of the film. Wow. And at, at some point, maybe there were three black stripes. I don't know. Uh, there's a version uh, on YouTube. If you, if you work YouTube a little bit, the um, film is badly damaged in terms of, my, in terms of the editing. In the first 15 minutes or so, it was mostly Daly's version. Uh, the one that plays on YouTube now, the last hour of the film is pretty intact. There are a couple of editions of things that Daly took out that they put back in, and there were a couple of things that had been changed. But I said the last half hour, last hour for the hour and a half film, it's, it's pretty, it's close enough that I could get people to to watch it. Of course, it's several generations from right. the print, so it doesn't have you know the the beauty of the uh, road trip through uh, Arizona, New Mexico, California. I remember the cinematography was just absolutely uh, stunning, and yeah. was one of the main assets of uh, of the film. Uh, yeah, the what, juxtaposition yeah, of the beauty of, of the America two, with the with the destruction. Yeah. Such a great message, such a great film to you know to film. I to looked at it right I, now. Yeah, it stands up yeah. because uh, you know just the only thing that makes it not quite current is that the cars are thirty years old. Right. Hey, can we rewind for a second and can you uh, share how you got started in or inspired to write? Was it was it the writing of film? that got you going or did you write when you were a kid and prose or what was the what was the genesis of your writing career i was 11 years old my father was a businessman but wanted to be a writer uh, my mother wanted a psychiatrist everybody in my family was psychiatrists so even at 11 years old i knew i was destined to go to med school become a psychoanalyst actually and they got me a uh, I had cramps when I was writing with a pencil. I just hold it too tight. Mm. And uh, so my parents got me a Smith Corona manual, not electric, manual typewriter. And I learned to type very quickly, and I was good at typing. Still am. So I began playing on the, the, the Smith Corona and tapped out stories. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was never shy about showing stuff. You know, good or bad, or mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's still that way. I don't, I don't. That's a gift. Criticism didn't didn't bother me a whole lot. 
Yeah, which served me well later on. Especially in the movie business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I wrote these stories that are really quite good, some of them. And uh, then my parents saw that I, you know, the writing was a good thing. And they got me an electric Smith Corona clamshell typewriter, which made things even faster and better. And uh, so I was in special English classes in high school, and I was uh, studied English. But my mother and father wanted still writing. Writing. My mother's a German shrink, you know. Mm-hmm. Writing's a good hobby, Kenny. So That's I wrote. The, I wrote this. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote those. I wrote stories. You know, went to college and uh, had no interest in. Well, I started out at Clark University. Okay. Uh, and flunked out of there. Uh, got an A in in going to the racetrack. <laughs> I, I was big in gambling. My father was a bridge champion, and I learned to play bridge from my father really well. And hearts and pinochle bridge was like stealing money from people. Uh, you know. <laughs> and uh, p- poker was too. Yeah. You know, I I wouldn't say I was a gambler and a pool player. Played a lot of pool. I was not a gambler. Uh, I hated to lose. Yeah, so I left Clark and got drafted and would have been on my way to uh, Vietnam, like Oliver. Began seeing a a shrink. My parents weren't, you know, going to allow me to be drafted no matter what. And, uh, but going to see a shrink and going through analysis when I was 19 years old put me in touch with, you know, what do you like to do? I like to go to movies, and mm. and I like to write, and, you know, oh. Click. <laughs> click. <laughs> and, Light bulb moment. And, and uh, you know, so I was already going, I had gone from Clark to Nassau Community College to Hunter College to Washington Square. And was, I was now in uh, NYU Washington Square, you know, determined that was... Uh, my academic career was not going to be a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist, <laughs> doctor. Uh, you Too know, many vices. I, I was like on my way to being a psychologist, I think. I said, with my shrink, who they found for me, a guy named uh, Fryman, terrific guy. Um, and, you know, he said, well, you know, why don't you do what you love? You're only 19, 20 years old. So I stopped gambling. Uh, I told my dad I wanted to switch to the film school at NYU. Who knew there was even such a thing? That's a, a story. Oliver Stone, Jonathan Kaplan, there were all these misfits that ended up in uh, in NYU film school with Scorsese as our teacher, one of our teachers. Um, and it, that was the end of work. Right. I never worked again because I was only writing, directing, uh, you found something so, that you love that yeah, and, and, you know, is and, your job. And I still feel the same way now that teaching it mostly. Right. Um, you know, never consider it work. It's fun. So what was it like at NYU with Oliver Stone and Scorsese as your teacher? And oh, Jonathan was, Kaplan became a good friend of yours, as I remember. Yeah. So, you know, I want, I'd seen a lot of movies. And uh, let, me, let me do a shout out to Marty. Um, and uh, but they were all Antonioni, Fellini, Truffaut, Chabrol, uh, Godard, 
you know, once in a while a black and white English film from the early 60s, like The Sporting Life. And everything else that was coming out of Hollywood was dreck, was garbage, was not worth my time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Blow Up and, and uh, Antonio, uh, Antonioni's film Blow Up and Godard's film Weekend, mm-hmm. I saw them each about 30, 40 times. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, that was what I wanted to do. And Marty had a class, one of the first classes in the end. This was before he made Mean Streets. And he was picking up extra money teaching. Uh, Haig Manoujian, who ran the school, was also Marty's producer. So, uh, but, you know, at the time, he just looked at this little guy jumping up and down with more enthusiasm for movies than anybody I'd ever seen. And uh, we had this class. And we, I didn't know what the class was. And he walked in. And uh, he showed one great American genre film a week. Uh, the Big Heat. Mm. Mm. Sweet Smell of Success, uh, Only Angels Have Wings, uh, you know, great Howard Hawks, John Ford, Hitchcock, all, all the great auteurs. And he's American got a photographic system. memory for all things cinema, right? Yeah. So he can tell you shot by shot. That must have well, been. Well, he just jumped, he showed the movie and then we, we'd just go crazy and talk about it. But the thing that blew me away is first of all, Truffaut didn't invent that. Godard didn't invent that shot, that juxtaposition of images. You know, they they took it from Hitchcock, from Ford. So first of all, like, oh, you know, this is the Bible. They, you know, read the original. Don't you don't mm-hmm. have to read the interpretations. Mm-hmm. So secondly, these movies were incredibly political. You know, most of these guys have been real uh, Fritz Lang and who made Metropolis and made a lot of movies about the class struggle more overtly could come to America and make them covertly mm. and, uh, you know, and have these strong points of view about life and how society works. The Big Heat's an amazing example. Um, so th- there was that, that you could really be political and they were in English. <laughs> and you were, you know, in your 20s. And did uh, you have something to say? Did you have a strong, find a strong voice when you saw these filmmakers? And yeah, it inspired right? me. I yeah. mean, the, the most inspiring moment was The Wild Bunch, which is one of the great, which, you know, we, Tarantino's favorite, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. this was 1969. And I was in film school, and Marty had a class, and it was showed one of these great films. But he couldn't stop talking. I just saw this, just saw this, this western, and I, and there's a scene with a little bird, and 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 then they go, and William Holden, who knew he could do this, and you know, he <laughs> went on for like 15, 20 minutes. Wow! So uh, we were down amazing. at NYU. So class was over. We all pile into the sixth train, go uptown, and played. It was playing at the. Cinema one two, well, now the one two three, but then one two, still there, and uh, went in to see it, and I was so the uh, the original uncut version uh, that was two hours and twenty and a half, a short two, movie by today's standards. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this had more content, and uh, I, I remember going in there and sitting there, and I was just blown away. That changed my whole perception of the kind of stories I wanted to tell. Sat through the movie twice, didn't get out of the seat. Mm. Wow. 
you know. And what were friends. you thinking about telling, and what? How did it change it? So where were where was what was your mindset in terms of storytelling and the kinds of stories, and then how did that shift it to what? Well, it's the character development. You know that you could you could do things with character, and I, I'm, in a genre piece. I'm talking now. Yeah. You know, at the time I was like just super entertained. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and trying to process what that was, but you know, it wasn't the politics of the uh, of the cust- culture of that movie. Um, it was the passion about that it was made. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's. Uh, it was somebody said back then that uh, you know every movie is about a director trying to make a movie and That's overcoming obstacles to make that movie mm. and, so and, and this one had such a love of cinema mm. such an embrace of characters such uh, chance taking yeah. and fuck you you know mm-hmm. uh, that, that it you know mattered more than whether this was about Vietnam or something you know but Peckham was just about getting the movie made you know he wasn't trying to change the world no it was just you know the adversity to find meaning in the thing you do. Now, you, you didn't have to have a, a, now, like, what's your theme? You know, I, I work with a lot of students and a lot of people who have become very successful. And I, I'm not going to go and ask them what the theme is, unless they want to talk on that level. But um, uh, it's, your passion, it's your passion about what you're doing that, uh, that will carry the day. Mm. Uh, and that your personality, your view, your, your worldview, your politics, um, your social activism, you know, all of that will be reflected in the movie if you trust your honesty and you trust your ability to do it. And, you know, I've worked on a lot of movies, some good, some not so good, you know, but the ones that I felt most passionate about and less technical about uh, were the ones that actually, you know, made my career, continued my employment, mm-hmm. um, and I think what, I think that's what what I learned from the Wild Bunch and from, and for these other great American cinema films. I've always felt it, whether it's in filmmaking or writing novels, um, you know, the in writing a novel, it's the prose, um, but it's really the voice. It's what you have to say mm-hmm. and the way you say yeah. it, um, and all of all, everything else that you've experienced in your life informs comes through you know all of your you know your your dna um and i think you know you don't really have to necessarily talk about and identify the themes because those themes those things that you're interested in will come through the words you choose the images you put up yeah now when i, when I read your books you know uh, I feel the passion for the story you're telling. That passion is is carried me through these twenty years and the school events I do and the audiences that I meet at Comic Cons and the the writing um, all, all all that is it takes to get a piece of art into the world because it's more than just the putting it on the page. There's a whole lot of press in the flesh to get people. And then once it catches on and once they, in my case, once they read the book and they interpret the book in the same way that I had it in my mind, or they watch the movie and that's what the director had in mind or the filmmakers, that's, that's a 
deeply powerful and satisfying uh, experience yeah. to to creating art. And I know that you know because you and I have worked together. Um, you've worked with me as a consultant uh, on the uh, Looking Glass Wars and um, and helped help shape. You know the direction. Originally, we we talked about it. Uh, you know, as a movie, and what you know, what the structure and what's the character, what's the character have to say, what's the character's obstacles, you know, what's the character's story. Looking back on it, mm-hmm. uh, and it was fun to talk story mm-hmm. with you and Elizabeth and yeah, Liz know. Cavalier, yeah. yeah. And uh, some of the other people, but just talking story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about it on my way over here. Your inspiration, from my point of view, was to take a black and white story and colorize it. That Alice grew up in the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. in uh, in England, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that that was the real world with the polit- political problems and. Good guys, bad guys, and mm-hmm. you know that that that's a world created that's been created before in film that you know really is dark and gray, and um, and very class conscious, right? You know, commentary really, on- and and Lewis Carroll's world, but also Frank Bator's world um, of Wonderland is a place in color, without industry. Mm-hmm. But not without struggle, not without competition, not without good guys and bad guys. The fluidity, you know, of characters being able to move from one world to another, uh, I think was is, was what sets your books apart. And I know when we talked about the Hatter story and his, you know, his fish out of water. Uh, in trying to deal with the world uh, over the 1800s. Yeah, I mean, you had me really drill down on Hatter's 13 years in our world, and where in the books I did basically a synopsis of those 13 years because I was following it from Alice's point of view, and then the graphic novels expanded it, and then you asked me to expand it once again. And and you asked me to do this in a... um, when I was putting the Bible together, and you might recall, uh, I was wrote, I think, a five or six page story that was an amalgamation of the books and the graphic novels to have in the Bible. And I made a few changes, and and I said, nobody's ever going to read this because it's way too long. And you really appreciated the 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 content and said it's going to serve you one day. In this yeah. case, we were talking about a movie. Yeah. It's going to serve you one day. Now, it doesn't serve me in the sense of selling it, but it certainly serves me when I talk to other creatives and they want to have a quick overview that gives you a beginning, middle, and end without reading 15 books. Yeah. And, um, and I wrote it in prose uh, style and, uh, and I gave... Each one of the characters, there are five or six pages, and I gave each one of those to you, right. and and uh, and you read them very uh, quickly and were enthusiastic and gave me great critiques on them, and they became the basically the the meat yeah, and potatoes, that. yeah, right. And yeah. Um, I mean, I still, you know, I make still people, think it's true. It's still in, in the 
teaching I do, and I've been uh, right. teaching grad film at NYU for 17 years now. Right. Character, character, character. You know, a character, world, character, character, world, character, plot, way out there someplace. Yeah. Don't worry about that now. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there were a few things that I was able to fill in that were very cinematic, um, and that I would change today. Of course, there's many things I would have changed uh, in the book, but um, what's great is having another go at it because, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, I'm taking my work and now adapting it for, you know, it's one thing if it's a movie, it's one thing if it's a TV show, and if it's a TV show, you you have time, and that's what people tune in. They want to see the the character, the character struggles, the obstacles, the relationship. Yeah, the world gets them in yeah. to it, and then yeah. But the characters yeah. keep them coming back, and uh, and so I want to uh, acknowledge and uh, and uh, let you know how much I appreciated that um, that feedback because um, now I'm really proud of writing those uh, stories. At the time, they were driving me crazy. <laughs> I thought no one's going to read these. No one's going to read it. I have a paragraph to get their attention or one line. So you haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? Hey, but let's just flip back to um, to Marty because uh, you told me the story of one of the early scripts that you wrote, and I ended up working on it years later, tried to get it going for you, the booster. Yeah. And you talked to Marty about that and with a up-and-coming actor. Is that right? Backstory. I was going to NYU and uh, studying film, but I was spending my nights at Max's Kansas City. Uh, with the Warhol people and the back room of Max's with all these incredible characters. I, so I was, uh, and, ma- and I made a film called Showdown. It was an eight-minute Western, and it won the National Student Film Festival and uh, played on Saturday Night Live when they used to have student films. Wow. <laughs> I love doing this podcast so much. And I mean, we're longtime friends and I've learned a lot and we're just getting going. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so anyway, the, the, that film played at Lincoln Center, played around. It was one of the great shorts. And I can tell you the story. In a okay. Minute. Yeah. Love to hear it. Uh, so uh, because of the wild bunch. <laughs> Good, you. I wanted to make use. Western, and I was uh-huh. fascinated. And at the time, we didn't have insurance companies and stuff like that. As a student, I could do anything. So I wanted to make a Western, a violent Western, as violent as I could possibly make it. Um, How old were you? Twenty. Okay, makes and, sense. Uh, maybe nineteen, nineteen or 20, twenty, I think. 
And uh, it was just after The Wild Bunch came out. So I had the story about two gangs of cowboys in this town, three on each, three brothers and three brothers. And they're arguing, uh, getting heated up about uh, the girl, you know. And one says, you know, well, I robbed the bank for her. And the other guy, well, I shot the sheriff for her. And they just start going through the litany of crimes that they've <laughs> made for this girl. And eventually, after three or four minutes of arguing about this, weapons are drawn. And then the fight starts. And they blow the shit out of each other. I learned how to do all that special effects with squibs and condoms and stuff to blow <laughs> blood all over the place. And I had ga- guns and uh, bombs and Gatling gun I managed to get from the prop house. And and they just blow the head out of them, hell out of each other. One guy's arm gets blown off. Another guy's liver falls out from the stomach. Another guy gets <laughs> 20 shots like that. Wow. Nobody dies. Oh. They just keep going and continuing to beat the <laughs> shit out of each other. And finally the girl says, stop it, stop it, goddammit. I've been with every time in town. I'm not worth fighting over. <laughs> and they go, eh, Maybe. Guy picks up his arm, the guy takes his liver, stuffs it, vests in the shirt, they get on the horses, and they ride out of town. Bonnie Python. <laughs> yeah, I was probably influenced by them as well. Maybe it was earlier. So uh, Marty was one of the judges, uh, you know, in the film. So I knew him from teaching, and, uh, you know, after that, uh, that film brought me into to attention of a lot of people. Howard Ziff, who you've met, friend, uh, from 50 years ago. And he uh, came, showed up, and he was an ad man in a suit, uh, pretty slick, and showed up at NYU and had seen my short at the festival and wanted to make somebody to write a movie about a, a character he knew. Uh, and that was Billy the K, the lead character of The Booster. The Booster is somebody who steals things in consignment. Mm. And this was back in the late 60s. So it was a. It was a, so. If I want a Cartier watch, a particular watch, I tell him, Billy Kay, go get me, get me this watch. Yeah, he dealt mostly in clothes. So, you know, he'd uh, he'd hang and go to parties, and you know, he had dyed his hair pink. He was a weird, wild guy, and he you'd meet meet him at the party, and they say, Frank, you know, this is my friend Billy. Frank, what the fuck are you wearing? Did you get that in your grandfather's closet? You know, what are you going to, let me, let me, you know, you, you, you ought to be in Da Vinci or Givenchy or something. And and I, I say, yeah, he says, but, you know, I can't afford, at the time, a $1,000 suit. And he'd say, well, you know, what if I get you, and he'd do the whole tailoring thing and say, okay, you know, 32 ways, 37 inseam, and he'd uh, say, you know, thousand dollars off the rack i'll get get it for you for 200 and you say right size he says yeah could just meet me here tomorrow night and then he'd go to Givenchy or any one of the boutiques or or bloomingdale's or Saks, and he'd basically shoplift he had a lot of different ways but uh he'd steal the suit uh you know a lot of times just run and gun you know just grab it or go out before the security could stop him it was he had various ways, and he'd show up the next night. at there was a you know a number of salons. There was this tailor. True story, 
who who ran a thing and movie stars would hang out there and because of my Warhol connections I'd get there and Howard was was the purchaser and then he'd come with the suit and it's exactly what you ordered. Wow. And, and he was the lead character yeah, for the booster. And, but you know, what was fascinating to me is then Howard said, Wait, watch this and he'd say, you know you know, Billy would say, Where's my two hundred bucks? And he'd say, You know, now that I look at this Maybe I didn't want it that badly. I don't think that's a good color. It goes with my face. It's, I, I know you went through a lot of trouble. I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. Mm. And he'd then say, "A uh, hundred bucks? I could just put it in the back of my uh, my pants and sell it out of the trunk of my car in Orchard Street." Well, my friend, you know, maybe maybe that's what you. Should. Well, all right, fifty. You know, and you. you You'd haggle them so down. So you haggle over a little bit. And, money, yeah. and most of the people who were doing the haggling had no trouble spending the full amount of money. Could have bought everything retail. It was Shelley Winters. It was, it was just uh, for the fun of it. Yeah. The, there, were, there were a lot of famous people who knew him. So, you know, we wrote uh, a movie about it. And uh, I knew De Niro, you know, just from hanging around NYU and Scorsese. So... Uh, was able to get the script to Bobby, and he read it, and he said, "We wants to do it. And we spent uh, a couple of months learning how to shoplift, going to Blooming Nails and all that. Oh, you did that uh, research? Yeah. You did some shoplifting. And we had, we had a financier that he brought to the table, and, and it's a true story. And we go up there, Howard, De Niro, myself, and, uh, and uh, one of uh, Marty's guys, to see his lawyer who was putting that as a question. And we go in there and they, we were supposed to sign the check and begin pre-production. And the secretary sitting there like pale white when we come in. And we said, you know, where's Lou? And he said, well, he's in London. He went to London to live. Oh, getting out of the country. He just, he just bailed on everybody. Oh. So then De Niro said... Uh, you know, I just finished this film with Marty. You, you mind if I show him the script, or you can show him the, the script? You know, I think you know. Would you step away and let Marty direct it? And I said, sure. I always feel you know that I've wanted to direct certain movies, but I want to get movies made. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, sure. And we had a couple of meetings with Marty, and he was developing Taxi Driver at the same time. So you it know, didn't work out. That happened. Mm. It got me out to L.A. You know, right. they, they uh, there was a guy, a producer named Jonathan Taplin, not Kaplan, but Taplin, mm-hmm. who had produced, I think, uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And uh, so then Marty, uh, when I stepped away as director, he said, uh, you know, well, uh, let, me, let me take this to Taplin. He might uh, finance it. And he said, he'll fly you out here. We'll make some changes on the script. Um, and uh, I went out to L.A. That's how I got out to L.A. And uh, stayed the first week in their offices, slept in the motels in the Burbank lot. And then he introduced me to Roger Corman. And you did Roger Corman. You wrote for Roger? or So uh, I came out and... Uh, Roger Corman had called me, and uh, Marty had uh, recommended Jonathan Kaplan and me. And he said, if you want comedy, you should get to Jonathan. If you want action, you should talk to Ken. 
And, uh, you know, <clears throat> Roger said, uh, this is Roger Corman calling from Los Angeles. Would you like to come out to Los Angeles and make a movie? And I, I said, yeah. I'll tell you a story about, uh, so, uh, so I packed up my, my girlfriend, my dad, get behind me, gave me the car, uh, his old Pontiac. To get you out here, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Celia and I and the little bird and the cat all drove to uh, L.A. And first night, in LA, and, and Jonathan had arranged for me to, to uh, stay in a big house in Laurel Canyon with the seven or eight other people. And I had gotten the, uh, I had no idea, I think this house belonged to Houdini at some point. Um, and we had the apartment over the garage. Everybody else lived in the big house, but shared the kitchen. And we, uh, I drove across country. I got to Los Angeles at 11 o'clock at night, found my way somehow, I don't know, up to this house, found the, the garage, the beautiful apartment. It was spectacular. And they had a little dish out with joints in it and... You know, oh, I'm thinking that's this, sweet. I'm thinking this is pretty good. <laughs> and uh, and the next morning, I'm a little jet lagged. I wake up at seven thirty, and I go to the kitchen to make myself a cup of coffee. And uh, there's a woman there cooking eggs, and uh, she was one of the most beautiful women. Well, it turns out to be classic, amazing beauty. L.A. Playboy Bunny, all of that. Her name was Michelle Swain. She's cooking eggs. But naked. <laughs> Paradise. And I'm the, Friedman, and 20 I'm the, years old. <laughs> I had to live. I was, my girlfriend was in you know, the room. I wasn't like, it was like, you know, <laughs> I funny. must have gone through the rabbit hole. It was definitely <laughs> Hotel California experience. This turned out to be a very bizarre and dark place. Understood. Well, um, I'm going to jump to... Four of your movies um, that I'm really interested in hearing how they came about. Um, White Line Fever was an early movie. I know you worked on The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, so I'm curious about that. Uh, Also, Cadillac Man with Robin Williams, who's amazing, who, by the way, at my wedding, you know because you were there. I quoted a couple of his lines from his other movie, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. So I'm a fan. And then uh, I remember some crazy stories with Mickey Rourke uh, in, what's his name? Johnny Handsome. Johnny Handsome. That's right. And Johnny Handsome. So uh, writer's choice, where you want to start? Well, I'll with- do chronologically. Uh, well, following up on the story, when I went to uh, work for Corman, but the film I wrote for him, which was really good, little action film, didn't get made. This is like Hollywood. He had uh, raised money from Al Bell and a couple of other connected people in Detroit and Chicago to make uh, a little step up from the Roger Corman films to Gene Corman films. Lovely, erudite, wonderful man uh, Gene was. Mm-hmm. And uh, terrible producer. And he, uh, so I'm writing this script about gangs in L.A. Uh, and uh, he's making the first of his three movies. 
and it was the never-to-be-forgotten Darktown Strutters. Never to be forgotten. <laughs> Who so could forget that? This was in the middle of the black cinema, and, you know. Yeah. But he managed to find some white redneck to direct this movie. I think it was with Pam Gear, And um, so uh, the story, basically, as I remember it, is this gang of female black action heroes go up against uh, this Colonel Sanders type who is poisoning the water supply with a chemical that makes all black men impotent. Great. <laughs> Already. What, is, what an inspiration. <laughs> Already. It's, <laughs> and it's a musical. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. Yes, no. That's too I much. Might, I might be That's, wrong. I, I may have embellished, embellished the story over the years. A few years later. But it was... But it, <laughs> Anyway, I get the picture. It was a disaster. Lost all the money. Uh, Gene said, uh, sorry, now I, they pulled out. They said they were going to break my legs if I didn't give them the rest of their money back. But, you know, I was 21, 20, 22, 22 years old. It was onward. And uh, I drove back to New York. I had uh, raised money. I found a guy. who I, I wrote a Western inspired by the Wild Bunch. A really good uh, script, too. And uh, had uh, um, I was an investor who was going to put up two hundred and fifty grand to make his western period piece in Israel, and I could raise another two hundred and fifty at the time by declaring by renouncing my U.S. citizenship and becoming an Israeli citizen, and then they would give me money towards this movie. There were a lot of other sketchy parts of this. Uh, we had gotten Richard Boone, famous, great, wonderful Western actor, horrible drunk who was going to kill me, you know. <laughs> so there was kind of push-pull on that. And I'd been driving back and forth cross-country and, uh, you know, noticed that the best, cheapest places to eat is where the truck drivers. Mm, truck went. stops. Truck stops. And I got to know them all, and I'd sit there and talk to them and hear the stories and um, talk to Jonathan about it. And when uh, we Don came up, yeah, who was, you know, my partner and friend. and uh, Had he directed any Hollywood? Yeah, he did. He had directed uh, in, in uh, the same time I was there. He did two, you know, like two-week shoot films, uh, little naughty films uh, for Roger. Night oh, call, I see. Night call nurses, they always come when you call. Oh, oh. Uh, and... Uh, did a couple of uh, uh, black films, black action films. One with Jim Brown, huh? may okay. rest in peace. Yeah, rest and, in peace. Uh, and one with Isaac Hayes mm. called Truck Turner. Mm. And um, so there was, uh, he was uh, sought after by, you know, the young Hollywood now. Because mm -hmm. those, those films were good. He's a very talented director. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were best friends and roommates. So we developed the story together. And um, this, this was actually when I, I was on my way to New York. Gave it to our agent at the time, Harry Eflin, who represented um, mm. Marty and mm. De Niro oh, wow. and everybody out in New York uh, film school. And uh, I drove to New York. I got to Kansas City, went to a phone booth. Jonathan had turned around and come home. Three studios won it. Um, We're talking about White Line Fever. White Line Fever. Yeah, yeah. And we went back and... Uh, we chose Columbia, and uh, our production executive was Peter Goober. 
he was actually head of production, and he was he was, you know, we were like twenty two, twenty three. He was twenty nine, and uh, you know he was the wonder kid. Hollywood at that time was in shock because uh, you know the studio system was had broken down. And they realized that the directors that they that they had on studio, all these old hacks from the 30s and 40s, you know, probably racist, probably classless, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't relate couldn't relate to the audience that went to Woodstock, you know, protesting against the Vietnam right. War and stuff. And so, you know, Corman first, and then other people uh, said, you know, we're going to hire these young people and let them go. Jonathan Demme. It was an amazing time, yeah. uh, going in from the 60s yeah. into the 70s. And, and into the you know, we didn't give a film. shit. Yeah. We were working for a guy who's 29, Peter Gubert. Great ideas. Really? Oh, he was the best executive I ever worked with. I've done four or five films with Peter. You know, he until until he got too big, he was a great producer. Mm. You know, he had great ideas. He'd seen all the movies that we had seen. He was a, he was a film buff. He was He loved movies. And you know we could talk to him in the language of film. Not in, he was he was he had a lot to do with the success of the film. We didn't know what we were doing. I was do, I, I directed the second unit. Jonathan did the first unit. Co-wrote it. Co-produced it. How was it? Uh, how was it received? It was a smash. Oh, you're kidding! It, yeah, it was. Uh, Tell me about that. I mean, those days. Well, I'll come many... full circle here okay. now. Um, okay. So. Uh, Harry Uffland did a very good job um, negotiating the contract. And um, I was uh, going to produce it. didn't know nothing about producing the film. Goober calls us into his office, and he's got one of those buttons that <laughs> slams the door behind you, yeah. you know. And he said, I'm going to tell you something right now, and you're going to have to answer me yes or no. I got a guy named John Kemeny. He's uh, he's out of Canada. He's got like a million dollars that he's going to invest in this film. He loves his script. Only thing is, he's got to be the producer. So, Ken, you're not the producer. (laughs) You know, I said, will I get paid what I was going to get paid before? And he said, yeah, I'll call Harry, Uh, you know. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even know what a producer was. So, uh, and uh, No, I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't know what a writer was either. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd made a bunch of movies, and that's what a producer does. I mean, they help get the movies made. Well, you help. So. You know, and you, even if you just hire a friend, uh, you put the team together, that's what a producer does. So, uh, so we opened the, the, the movie, worked with Peter on it. You know, I did the writing. Uh, and uh, the film cost a million four, mm-hmm. and it made uh, like forty, fifty million. Wow, that's domestic. a smash domestic. hit. Forty smash. times cost. Wow. And uh, we Spectacular. Ma- made spectacular. Six months after, you know the movie. Yeah, sure. You know that big crash at the end. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I remember. I remember coming out of the movie, and uh, we went to the premieres and. You know, we, we we know people like the movie. It's and the movie's great. You know, you could look at it now. Um, but the, the publicist got on the phone. He says, "You won't believe this. You know that 
It says it was a. Uh, it opened in Wyoming at, uh, and playing at the one seminar, and uh, the movie. The movie was over. This guy takes his car and flies full speed into Seven Eleven. And I said, inspiring people <laughs> wherever you make movies, Ken. Yeah. And uh, so four months after the film opens, I get a check in the mail from Columbia Pictures, my share of profits, the only time I've ever had shared in profits uh, because of the deal that Goober made with this guy. And I had a t- check for $104,000. Wow. That must have been a lot of money. Million dollars. Yeah, million dollars, right? Well, I'll tell you a story about that. So, so the million dollars. So I, you know, call up home, and my mother picks up the phone, and I say, uh, "Guess what? I'm holding in my hand." <laughs> and she says, "No, Kenny, I don't know. I don't want to play these games. What are you holding in your hand?" I said, "A check for one hundred four thousand dollars for that film we made that you didn't understand." <laughs> And she says, you know, my father didn't make that in a year, uh. you know. And um, she says, look, you did very good. Good, I'm very proud of you. You did very good. Thanks, Mom. Three days later, two days, two days, two days later, I get a phone call from my mother. And she says, your father and I were thinking. This is maybe my mother was thinking and my father was listening. Um, my My mother said, you could go back to medical school <laughs> and, and be a psychoanalyst by the time you're 32. So no, that's I, very funny. I, I, you know, the the whole the whole thing when you're in your 20s, or actually any time with your parents, and when you've done something and you feel proud and you want them to be proud of it, um, it's exciting. I I had a similar thing with there's something about Mary. And we were driving to the premiere in Westwood. We were in the limo. They had flown out for it. And my mom suddenly was very concerned. She said, somebody told me that this was considered a gross-out comedy. And I really don't like gross-out comedies. And... um, and I said, okay, mom, yeah, you know, somebody, people will think that maybe, but let's just go in and see the movie and tell me afterwards. And so we went in and, of course, it was completely packed. We had seats reserved for them. They were right in the middle. And then the movie comes on and from beginning to end, everybody is roaring with laughter. There's 1,500 people. Bodies are going. People are slapping. It's the funniest thing ever. My mom can't believe it. She goes home to Minnesota. She invites her two friends to the Dock Theater, which is seats about 30 people. She goes in with her two friends. There's nobody else in the theater. They start watching the movie and nothing. Crickets from her friends. It's nothing like Los Angeles. <laughs> all they see is the gross out part of it. They don't get the film at all. And my mom shrinks into a small little being like, oh, you know, she, you didn't like the movie. And she calls me. She goes, um, Justy uh, and uh, and Jerry did not appreciate the humor in your movie. I go, Mom, do you remember the screening? And then I called her and said, Mom, the movie made $350 million and yeah. they just paid me a couple million dollars. And she was like, good for okay. you, son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, yeah. my mother saw Made in USA and, uh, you know, she said, 
was in the screening room in New York for about 50 people after Canton. It's very interesting. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, when they yeah, say she's, very she's, interesting, love the music, she's, she's, she's in trouble. Yeah, she's trying to think uh, how somehow that's like a revealing of my character. <laughs> like it's a dream. Not that must have been hard to live oh, with, God. the psychoanalyst, as your, as your mother. So, uh, upshot, Jonathan and I just... Uh, uh, became hot stuff in town. We became hot stuff, but we each had 104000 and we decided we put together a fund and opened a company called Kaplan Friedman Productions, and we each took, I don't know, 40000 of the money and invested it in this company because, you know, we thought we were lucky that all the people we went to school with or the friends that we had made in L.A. were trying to be writers and directors or uh, actors. That, that we'd have a company that would support their dream projects. And um, that's inspirational. So we put, like, I don't know, you know, 30, You lose 000, all the money? Every penny. <laughs> nobody, not, not only that, nobody delivered. No. Uh, tragic. Nobody, our friends. None of them nobody, delivered. They got no. the money and didn't deliver. Yeah. Was, so you went back to work. It was. We were patronizing, you know, and uh, they wanted to. You know, it wasn't, it was needed. They took the money, but it wasn't appreciated. Uh, and nor did they want to take notes from us or, you know, they just... Uh, they just wanted the cash to go do their thing. I mean, the, look, there's a reason there's a studio system in place. I mean, it's um, the checks and balances. And you had Peter Goober. And if you have a great executive, um, like a great editor, uh, you know, with my with my book, they make it better. Because they know the right questions, they demand, um, they, they, they demand more from you. I mean, I, I, they expect that you can do better, but they're not patronizing, and they're your partner or your, they're inspirational. They're not, you know, ripping you, tearing you down. They want to tear you apart so they can you can build yourself up stronger with your with your work. So. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's that altruistic. You know, they, they want to. Well, not anymore. I, I had certainly not anymore. No, it's not. I had, uh, you know, aside from John Daly, and you know, at the time, people thought, "Why aren't you more angry?" And I said, "Nobody would have made that movie." I mean, right. besides the stream of consciousness writing and then the original script, that there were no dialogue headings. It was just dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, no, it was there crazy. Were I do. I did to create interest in the script. I absolutely loved it. And the only script that I've ever read that was similar was Leon, which was the um, Luke Persson uh, Pers- movie um, with uh, Natalie Portman, uh, that, um, the professional. It was the oh, profe- yeah. it was called Leon uh, in the French version, but the script was very very similar to the style that you yeah. and I was a script uh, reader at the time, and they paid me fifty bucks to and 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 I said I, I want to can I option that How can I get that script uh, I really wanted I didn't think anybody would make that script I thought it was amazing and it was the same It wrote it in exactly the same style you did and it was f- so much fun to read It was just great yeah i mean it's still it's still a, the game is great. get yeah. people to read get people know? to read that's a challenge we'll talk about the fugitive because you know that's one of my 
dad's one of my favorite movies. I loved Harrison Ford at the top of his game. I know you came in. I can't remember where you came in on top of. There was a movie. There were uh, a lot of uh, stabs of it. It was a successful TV show. I had just come off of Johnny Handsome and Cadillac Man, so I had written two movies within one year that were major stars, major releases. And uh, so I I was hot. They were having trouble getting a a script out of it. Uh, Walter Hill was directing it, and uh, Alec Baldwin was starring in it. Oh, Alec Baldwin. Uh, They didn't have a script yet, but Alec had... had, um, committed to do it. Walter was going to direct it. I had uh, done Johnny Handsome with Walter. And uh, Chuck was producer of Johnny Handsome. So he and Walter and I were kind of a a team. And we came in to, it was a big, big, big budget uh, film and uh, took over the writing, directing of it. So uh, Walter, you know, one of the greatest screenwriters and Hollywood history, and I can right. do shout-outs to Walter. Right. I learned more from him about writing than anybody else. So we came in as a team. We had a little different take on the movie, but I, I, 23 minutes of the movie came out of that partnership. So we wrote uh, two different two drafts. There were probably three or four writers who, who did drafts before us and three or four writers who did drafts after us. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we made it, 23 minutes remain in the movie from the Walter Ken Friedman, mm. Chuck Rothen version. Mm. Uh, and it's it starts, this is an interesting story because it's how films get written. And I tell this story in my class. Um, so uh, we had a take and we had meetings uh, with the producer and Warner Brothers and uh, everything was good. Plane, train crashes, he gets away, he's on the run, Tommy Lee Jones comes in as the uh, cop, says he's been on the run for six minutes and 20 seconds, he can't go more than a mile in this direction, put out a circle, you know, so he comes in and does that. Harrison Ford manages to escape, he's a doctor, goes into a clinic, sutures his own wound mm-hmm. on the racetrack, continues his escape. Gerard, played by Tommy Lee Jones, uh, goes after him. They have a couple of close calls. Then you find out they've gotten the, they've caught the fugitive, but the fugitive is caught as somebody else mm. who escaped from the train, and he almost makes his way, but they find him again, and he's uh, at Niagara Falls, and he's going to jump in the falls, and Harrison Ford says, you know, I didn't do it, and Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. And so whole, that whole section of the movie uh, we wrote, mm. I wrote, I wrote a lot of that dialogue and came up with bits. And then uh, the cops reconnoiter and how they're going to find him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we departed ways. Mm. You know, we, we were lovers of the TV show. Mm-hmm. We did not make it a revenge picture. Mm-hmm. The big problem with the film that, and I was, I'm wrong on this, um, but I felt, how can this rich, powerful, Harrison Ford look like, handsome guy, allow himself to be 
found guilty for a crime he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. You know, he would have the best lawyers. He would, you know, so why didn't he put up any defense? Mm-hmm. Well, because in the TV show, which dealt with the same problem, he had a shitty relationship with his wife. She was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He'd work all, he'd work overtime just to get away from her. So one night he stays at the hospital when he doesn't have to. And at that night she's, uh, Home, and, home intrusion, mm-hmm. and with one armed man, and kills his wife, and he's feeling guilty. He feels that he needs to pay mm-hmm. for the crime. So that's he doesn't. He chooses not to defend himself. So this is the story mm-hmm. as we saw it, and we worked at it with Alec and Walter and and Chuck, and we, we talked it through, and we went that way, and they were they were thrilled with the first. They didn't mind that change in character. Um, and then in the second half of the movie, you know, he, in the TV show, he wanders Christ-like across America, uh, saving women in bad relationships from mm-hmm. being abused, pretty much mm-hmm. every other show anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's really good looking, but he can't stay and fulfill these women's, right. you know, he moves on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we then went and, and put a kind of a TV episode in the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. As he's also looking for the one our man, and Gerard is looking at him. Mm. But it's not the insurance companies mm. covering up a, a, a right. bad deal. It's not, right. a, it's not a revenge picture. Right, right, right. And not a mystery. Right. But when he saved enough lives at a certain point, he's going to forgive himself. Right. And, he can, you know, there's a confrontation action scene with the one our man. It's great. Talking movies. This is a podcast called There's All Things Alice. We can certainly say it's all things movies, um, but uh, uh, to bring it back to the name of the podcast, if you could just uh, share with us your uh, first introduction um, or to Alice in Wonderland, whether it's in pop culture or reading the book or you know working with me, I, I don't know, but. Uh, that I remember working yeah. with you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm absolutely sure uh, that uh, I had a previous exposure to it. Whether I read the book, I, I have a vague idea that I may have read parts. I, I was an avid reader of, mm-hmm. uh, of books, mm-hmm. so I can't imagine that I wouldn't have read it, but... You know, stuff that I read at seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I might not have understood. I can't remember whether it was a movie or not a movie. I was aware of it. Yeah, you were aware of it from from a Disney, uh, from the Disney movies, or from the yeah. Books if or? there were, if there were a Disney movie, I, I I did read it at somewhere along yeah. the line, and I don't think I read it at an age where I would understood the uh, the comedy of it, right? The satire, right? The satire, the political that's... satire. Well, one of the one of the things that you um, that you brought up uh, early on when I was uh, working when we were working on the Looking Glass Wars, in particular the TV show, um, you did bring up the theme and the theme of imagination, and which is as you know runs through all my books. But having had this conversation with you, I think it runs through your life as well uh, in terms of you know your 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 desire to tell stories and your commitment to screenwriting commitment to 
going to combine your love of that typewriter and writing with movies. Well, that was a fantastic conversation. Um, Kenny, I don't think we can end it there. I I really need you to come back. Uh, Would you be willing to come back for a part two interview? Oh, certainly. I look forward to it. Okay. I can almost imagine it right now. (laughs) I can imagine it as well, as if I already know what we're going to talk about. (laughs) Thanks. Looking forward to it. You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. (laughs) Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?